The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. That's Psalm 93, which along with Psalm 96 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, December the 24th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today on this uh, wonderful uh exciting day which is christmas eve the day before the incarnation that we well, at least the day before we celebrate the incarnation again this year as we long for the coming again of christ in glory and we know that that promise is true because well he made it <clears throat> so today we're going to look at we're going to be in the the um apocryphal book of baruch which is uh and which has to do with some wisdom and then we have, we're going to be still in the book of Galatians in chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, which follows yesterday's reading. And then continuing our study in the book of Luke in the gospel, uh, chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. So in Baruch, it says, Take courage, my children, cry to God, and he will deliver you from the power and the hand of the enemy. There's a promise there. For I put my hope in the everlasting to save you, and joy has come to me from the Holy One because of the mercy that will soon come to you from your everlasting Savior. So the promise is there that God will come and he will save you in mercy. For I sent you out with sorrow and weeping, but God will give you back to me with joy and gladness forever. For as the neighbors of Zion have now seen your capture, so they soon will see your salvation by God, which will come to you with great glory and with the splendor of the everlasting. These, you know, these promises that, that God's going to bring his people back from captivity um, are made again and again. And why are they in captivity? Well, because of their sin, because they deviated from him. They left him behind and they pursued the imagination of their hearts rather than the truth of God. They're, they're pursuing something other than what God had promised. And, and so if we pursue his promises, then we're good. But once we start pursuing things outside of that, then God has to come and judge us because we're intended to be those people who recognize his kingdom as being of utmost value. And whenever we fail to do that and we fail to live according to his kingdom, then God has to rebuke us and he has to take away our lampstand because we're representing him in all things and in all ways. And so now what, the, what Baruch is writing is to say, hey, here's a promise that while now your neighbors laugh and mock you to scorn for what the Lord has done to you in his judgment, know this, that he will bring you back, that he will do as he promised. He will redeem you. And as Christians, we know that that ultimate redemption moves us into God's kingdom wherever we are now in order that we might participate in the full establishment of his kingdom in the world to come. So we can count on that promise of Christ 
to ultimately redeem us and that we will be included in his kingdom. My children, endure with patience the wrath that has come upon you from God. Your enemy has overtaken you, but you will soon see their destruction and will tread upon their necks. My pampered children have traveled rough roads. They were taken away like a flock, carried off by the enemy. God cares. God sees, God hears, and God cares. But his glory is of primary importance. But he loves the people who are called by his name. And so while he loves us, loves the people called by his name, sometimes there are consequences for sin. And that grieves him as well. And we see that in the, at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus weeps. Now, is Jesus weeping because Lazarus is dead? No, he's getting ready to do something about that. What he's weeping over is death itself. Because he understands the grief we feel at the separation from our loved ones. But, but it's because of sin that this is a reality in this world. This is, take courage, my children, and cry to God, for you'll be remembered by the one who brought this upon you, which is exactly how this begins. Take courage, my children, cry to God, and he'll deliver you from the power in the hand of the enemy. So take courage here, my children, and cry to God, for you will be remembered by the one who brought this upon you. For just as you were disposed to go astray from God, return with tenfold zeal to seek him. For the one who brought these calamities upon you will bring you everlasting joy with your salvation. It's an interesting thing that in Judaism, one of the things that they believe is, is is that those who have gone astray and then returned actually know something about God that those who've never strayed don't know. They understand his mercy, but they also understand the penalty of sin and, and the way they understand it is having to go through the process, and it is a process, of repenting. And it's the, the Hebrew word for that is called shuva. And the, it begins as, as repentance as intended to. This is not a Jewish concept as opposed to a Christian concept. It's a, it's a Christian concept, but we very rarely even speak of these things. We, we use the word repentance, and frequently all it is is a word that's used to, to substitute for confession, which is the first step in the process. It's a confessio is to agree. And so it's agreeing with God about the nature of my conduct, So I I confess my sin, but I do so with a heartfelt desire to never do this again. And that's the repentance part is the turning away from that. But you're not turning away randomly. You're turning back to God. You're confessing that I should have done this or I shouldn't have done what I did. and, And I should have done something else. And I don't want to do this in the future because it grieves you. And it causes a rift and a separation between us. And so whether it's a sin against God or a sin against a human makes a difference in what you do next, right? So when there's a sacrificial system was in place, if you sinned against God, you went and made a sacrifice. And that was how you restored to fellowship. You made a sacrifice for sin. But but in in interpersonal sin, even in the time of sacrifice, you still made a sacrifice because sin is sin, and all sin is ultimately rebellion against God. But if it's an interpersonal sin, then then you're required 
under the laws of Shuvah to go to that person as well and to confess your sin. And to the extent there's any restitution, possible or necessary, you're required to do that. And we need to think about repentance in that way. We need to think about sin in that way, that it's a costly thing. Because in the Old Testament, it was a very costly thing because you had to make the sacrifice. You had to then also go and try and make restitution, which is exactly what Zacchaeus says that he will do. If he's defrauded anybody, if he's stolen from anybody, he's going to make restitution for that. And so that's exactly the process for that, is that how do we return to God with tenfold zeal? Well, we do it by showing that we understand sin to be a really important matter. It cost him his son, right? So it cost Jesus the cross. And we need, because we're not paying personal price for that sin doesn't mean there's no price. There is a price, and it's a heavy price, and it was laid on Jesus, but it was laid on him willingly. The incarnation is the beginning of the process of the solution to sin and the salvation of souls. In the gospel lesson, it says, and his father Zechariah, his father being John the Baptist, is the his that's referred to there, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So we've got John filled with the Spirit, Elizabeth filled with the Spirit, and now Zechariah filled with the Spirit. And so he begins to say or pray or sing, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Which means that it's not John is not the Savior because he's not in the house of David. He's in the house of Aaron. So he's in the Aaronic line, not the Davidic line. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So it, it, these are fulfillment of promises in line with the covenant relationship that exists between God and his people. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So it goes back not only to David, but all the way back to Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, John, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is exactly what John said his mission was, was to be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so John accepted this mission from the earliest days of his life to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So salvation has a particular context and content right? So salvation is the forgiveness of sins. And what was John's message was was to, to convict his people of sin so that they might come and receive his mercy and his forgiveness and then be baptized, which is the renewal of life. You're washed from your sins in the mikvah because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The day spring, the day star will visit us, and the day star is Jesus himself, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
So the light to those who sit in darkness is the extension of the light of Christ. The, the Torah is the light of the world, okay, in Judaism. And so the the temple, for instance, the holy place where we have um, the showbread and the altar of incense, in that place, though that menorah that are in there, those lights that are in that place, the way the temple was constructed was not so that light from outside would come in. It was the other way around, so that the light from those menorah would light the world, because the Torah is considered the light of the world, and the Torah is what? It's the Word of God. And what does Jesus say? He is the light of the world. And so he is the Word, but he is also the light of the world, because those two things are coextensive with one another. And so Jesus is the light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of the public appearance to Israel. In the epistle today, we have Galatians three fifteen to 22. And remember what Paul's argument has been, that, that, that this is all faith. It's not about works. It's not something you do. It's not how you get saved. No, it's mercy, and it's forgiveness of sins. But we can't get forgiveness unless we confess and repent. We have to acknowledge our sins in order to be forgiven of sin. And I've said this before, and that is the first work of the Holy Spirit, according to the Gospel of John, is to convict the world of sin of righteousness and judgment. And the thing that I would argue is is that the hardest work of the Holy Spirit is sometimes to convict Christians of sin. Because we have a harder time—I don't know why this is, but but we seem to, to not have a sensitivity to sin sometimes in our own lives, and we'll make all kinds of excuses and hide from the truth. Here he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, even if it's between me and you, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So you can't unilaterally change the terms of a covenant. Now that we've made it, then we have to make a new covenant in order to define a relationship that's different from the old covenant. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. So we're all offspring of Abraham, is kind of how he's getting at it, through faith. And he says, <laughs> referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So he says the offspring that's mentioned here, it, the promises, are in Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So, so what happened at Sinai didn't annul what happened before. The covenant goes all the way back to Abraham prior to circumcision. He says, so it doesn't annul the covenant previously ratified so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the, that, that covenant made at, Israel, at Sinai is only an extension of the covenant that was made with Abraham. It's the same people that who this is for. And so if he's making it with them at Sinai, he's already in covenant with them through Abraham. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. When until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so the belief in Judaism is, is that, that angels attended and accompanied the giving of the law. So it wasn't just 
uh, Moses and God on the mountain, that there were angels there as well, and they attested to this covenant. In the same way that God sent an angel, Gabriel, to both Zechariah in the temple to announce John's birth and also to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. And in both of those, there are covenants made in those things because God made promises when he did that. So here, he says it's put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God's one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? In other words, does, does the law somehow run counter to the promise that he made to Abraham? So does the giving of the law at Sinai, is it a different God? Is it a different covenant? Or is it the, an extension of the same one? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. In other words, if there was a law by which we were expected to live and that law also gave life, then righteousness would be according to the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, which is God, which is uh, Paul's argument again and again and again. The law was for one reason, right? It was to lead us to Christ by showing us what sin was. And so now we live in a time when people want to redefine parts of the law as not sin. It's important that we agree with God about the nature of sin because it's important that we receive all the grace and the mercy that's on offer, but it's only on offer to the extent that we confess our sins to him. If we don't confess, then we don't receive the mercy and grace that we're intended to receive, and that mercy and grace is intended to also change us, make us new creations, make us those who are prepared to greet him in the coming again with joy and gladness and not in fear. I hope you have a blessed Christmas, and I hope that, that the Lord shows up and that he is greatly magnified in your hearts and on your tongues this year.